well. As, as Danielle mentioned, my name is Selena Cetacetis. I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and I uh, went to college at uh, University of Texas at El Paso, undergrad and, and graduate school as well. I worked for five years in a public accounting firm in El Paso and then moved to Houston in 2006. So I'm, I'm about nine years away from calling uh, Houston home. So, uh, so I'm almost there, uh, but I, I love working in Houston, uh, but I serve clients in all markets markets in Texas and in, and in New Mexico as well, our group does. So public sector is a bit of a misnomer, but you know, we do work with governmental entities and not-for-profits that have a lot of that receive a lot of federal funding. And as you know, as entities are receiving federal funds, it's a very specialized area. Um, and so our group does specialize in that. And I have a passion for when it comes to governments, education is my passion. So I'm glad that Emily invited me to be part of this. Uh, I work with K through 12 and higher ed entities, lots of federal funding. But then when it comes to my not-for-profits, a lot of not-for-profits that educate women, that provide women with uh, opportunities in, in the job market, whether it's here uh, in Texas, in Houston, or um, in variety of markets, but also abroad. I love one of our uh, Dallas-based uh, not-for-profits that have operations in Kenya and Haiti. So not-for-profits are dear, near and dear to my heart just because I really believe in their mission. Um, and so I'm always glad to be part of it and excited to see the new opportunities that they receive as they get these federal funds and where the world, you know, where in the world they can take their their knowledge, their their operations, and and really their their philanthropy. Um, so, so thank you again for letting me be part of this. Um, I have been with Whitley Penn uh, since I arrived in Houston uh, through various mergers, but same firm uh, here and, and love the people. And, and I believe in that H there in, in humility. In fact, when we hire our people and on my team too, you know, I look for people that are humble, hungry, and smart, right? And smart, the biggest thing is being smart with the people that we interact with, not necessarily book smarts. Of course, that's needed, right? To be technical, but but that humility goes a long way. And I think that's why it's easy to connect with the mission of, of many not-for-profits just because it is required and and that's it's it's a servant's attitude that you have to have. So I'll get hand it over back to you, Emily. Right. I'm going to just walk through a series of questions with Felina this morning. There are questions that we get asked frequently throughout the year. And I think in particular, audit is a scary word that gives a lot of people pause. And I think by the end of this presentation, you're going to say, oh, that's not that bad. <laughs> so what I wanted to start off with is first question what does an auditor really do with our clients? Yeah, that's a great question, Emily. And, and while we're a necessary evil, right, um, if we want to be negative, we don't have to be that. You know, our goal is to be that trusted advisor. And yes, we're serving the, the, the purpose is to provide you with financial statements or an opinion on your financial statements. That's the real goal here. Uh, but the process is a lot of work and many, many clients choose to go a different route, but the audit is necessary, as we'll see here later in the program, um, later in the program where, where we'll need to um, 
other other avenues that we that we can take. But an audit is the highest level of assurance. So we tell the readers that they can rely on the financial statements that are presented, and it could be for a variety of individuals, users, right? Uh, but we start with the planning and risk assessment. We look at your internal controls. Uh, mind you, with not-for-profits, internal controls designing them and implementing them can be a little bit scary just because most nonprofits have small operations or small administrative staff. So to create that those those internal controls gets becomes a little bit scary. But later on we'll talk about some some different um, solutions for that as well. You know, as we do the, we look at your internal controls, if necessary, we'll test those key controls. And the more controls that you have, and if they're designed and implemented well, that means we do less work on the back end as far as looking at the actual numbers that populate your financial statements. In other words, if you have strong internal controls, we can rely on corroborating and confirming information through third parties. Um, if controls are weak, then we're going to have to look at a significant number of transactions throughout the year. So there's always that inverse relationship between your internal controls and the amount of work that we have to do. Um, in the end, right, we usually like to separate our, our audit into two two phases where we focus on controls. And, and if you do receive federal funding, we focus on the compliance portion of it so that when the year end close happens, you just focus on that. And then we come back and look at the actual uh, balances, balance sheet items, and then the transactions in your income statement or statement of activities for not-for-profits. But for simplicities, I'll just purposes, I'll call it a balance sheet and income statement, your profit and loss statements. Um, while we know that not-for-profits are not there to make a profit. But still, you know, we're, we're very concerned with do the revenues exist, right? Every client, it's not, it's not anything personal to a not-for-profit or to you as a CFO, but every client wants to overstate their revenues. They want to understate their liabilities. They want to overstate their cash, right? Anything that'll make the organization look better. So we know that that's always a risk. So we're going to focus in on those directionally risky um, areas. And that's where we focus uh, our, our efforts. All of this is necessary so we can issue an opinion. And so there's three types of opinions that an auditor can issue. So they worsen as you, as you move move along, right? So I'll start with the unmodified uh, or clean opinion. Oh, we are ready for a poll. Do you want me to read them? Yeah? No, or I think just keep just going. Sure okay. Um... okay, if you're getting some coffee, note that there is a poll occurring. Poll at the moment. Yeah, so come back to your computer before it closes so you can get CPE credit. Um, but the unmodified or clean opinion, that's what every entity wants. That's what um, regulatory agencies look for. That's what grantors uh, look for, um, as well as any uh, lenders, right? Any if, you're, if you have a bank loan, et cetera, they want that unmodified or clean opinion. That indicates that the financial statements are correct in all material respect. It doesn't mean that they're perfect, but would it sway the users of the financial statements if there was an error or if you didn't correct something? So that's what you have to ask for. And we determine materiality. So just depending on the risk of the client, we can make that materiality higher or lower. Um, but, but it's really based on risk and materiality. 
And we can always go over that with your board um, as well. The second category is a qualification or it's a modification of an opinion. So if we have to qualify the opinion and it's an except for, so we would say the financial statements are properly stated except for maybe capital assets or inventory. So it means everything's good except for a few areas. The third category is a disclaimer of, it, of an opinion where the records are so poor that we can't even provide you with an opinion. We have to stay silent, but we have to indicate that we weren't able to um, gain any assurance or provide you with any assurance on the figures presented within your financial statements. So that's the real the real process of the audit and it sounds scary and it's it sounds like a lot of work and it is but when you get that unmodified opinion you've earned it you've kept those records clean across the um uh, throughout the entire year and so it's best um you know just to embrace it and 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 not be afraid of the audit because it does give you opportunities uh provide you with the opportunities for growth in, in the future that's awesome. I had never heard someone say focus on directionally risky areas before. And to <laughs> me, that explains what you do so much more clearly than I've ever heard before. So I want to just focus in a little bit about what's different about an audit with a nonprofit versus any other business that might go through an audit. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, you know, you're you have programs that you have to run. You're not looking to make a profit. So for us, you know, if you have um, endowments or foundations that provide you with, with funds, your cash and investments are going to be of higher risk to us. And we want to confirm and cooperate. But, you know, we also want to look at the, the division between your programmatic expenditures and your administrative expenditures in relation to your fundraising, fundraising activities as well. Because for non-for-profits, we have to think beyond the audit because you have the 990 reporting um, responsibilities as well, your tax return that, that's unique to not-for-profits. And for us, we have to always keep the, the tax side of it in mind. And you also have to do that as well. And I actually have some clients that they really only focus on the 990 because when they have donors or grantors, that's what those those individuals focus on first. Yes, the audit is is of great importance because they're looking for that clean opinion before they give you that those funds. Um, but but I think that that mix of how you're actually using your funds, they don't want to see a high administrative uh, to program programmatic expenditure ratio, right? They want you to keep your administrative ratio uh, lower, um, and 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 really. The way we have to tailor our our procedures is a bit different from, say, a very large government with tons of employees, 3,000, 5,000 employees or a corporation, because you are limited in the number of individuals in your accounting department. It may be a party of one. So what do you do then? How do you segregate yourself? Well, you can't. Right. So we have to take that into consideration. And then you bring in the, your board of directors into the mix and have them take responsibilities uh, oversight responsibilities when you're the only one. Because for me, if I were in your shoes and you are a party of one, something goes wrong, I don't want that to fall on me. I want someone else looking at my work. So for us, when we do come and audit you, we'll look at those risks or those potential pitfalls for you to say, you know, not that you're doing anything wrong, but 
if something does go wrong, do you really want all the fingers pointing at you? Um, and really to protect yourself and prote to protect the organization. And on the board side, you want to tell those board members, you never know when that administrator is going to have a bad year, a bad month, and that when there's lack of segregation of duties, it's it's easier um, to be tempted to do to do um, bad things with that lack of segregation of duty. So overall, I think that's that's what we really have to take into consideration. Mindful of your operations, do you only operate in Texas? Do you operate in other states and other markets? Do you do you operate in other countries? And if so, what what tax implement implications? Oh my gosh, I can't say that word. <laughs> implications does that bring? Um, and then finally, the other thing that we get, Emily and I get questions just here recently about unrelated business income tax, right? Mm -hmm. your, your, all of your activities are, are supposed to go towards this tax exempt purpose. But when you do start making um, income or generating income for your nonprofit that, that is unrelated to the sole mission of your not-for-profit, we have to take that into consideration and then work with the tax folks as well to say, okay, how does this impact it? Do we have to do anything on the financial statements? Um, and and really for you all, uh, for not-for-profits, it's a little different too from if you don't receive any federal funds, you're usually doing, you know, getting an audit also because um, you need to provide that to a regulator, et cetera. But but we'll get into that here here in a bit as well. But 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 again, it's different because of size operations and the controls that are in place. That's great. So to give you a little break, if you need some water, I will just kind of insert here. I work in our tax group, as I mentioned earlier, and I think one of the things that really does seem different about our nonprofit audits is that focus on how we get from the audit to the 990, the information returned due to the IRS each year. That statement of functional expenses that walks through how we're spending our funds versus program management and fundraising. I think that can be so crucial for an organization to understand. And what I feel like we've seen over the course of our time together is the audit standards and the IRS standards coming a little bit closer together for nonprofits and trying to bridge the gap between an audit and a, non, and a tax return for these nonprofit organizations. Um, so you've touched on it a little bit. Let's spend a little bit of time when do you think it's time to get an audit if you're a nonprofit organization? Yeah. You know, sometimes you have a, a new mix just starting internally. You have a new board that says, you know, it'd be a good idea to do a financial statement audit. I have some entities that, that rotate between an audit and maybe a review and they mm -hmm. just because they try to manage cost, right? A lot of not-for-profits they, they're on a limited budget. They want all of their funds, if, if possible, to go towards uh, programmatic um, purposes or expenditures. Uh, but sometimes you need that line of credit and those depository institutions or lenders will request that you uh, obtain a financial statement audit. Maybe you want to obtain debt. You haven't done so, uh, but in order to even be considered for a loan, you have to have a financial statement um, audit. <clears throat> Perhaps you're thinking about applying for a grant and they ask you to undergo a financial statement audit. And then there's a second level of standards that you would have to 
uh, that your auditor would have to apply, which is called government auditing standards. And again, that's a misnomer because government auditing standards comes into the mix whenever there's going to be state or federal grants involved in your financial activities. So it doesn't mean that it only applies to governments, but it's, it applies to state, local, state governments, local governments, and not-for-profit entities. And then, um, you know, some, some grantors say we need to see this financial statement in accordance with those additional standards. If some entities will say, we'll give you this grant, However, now you're going to have to have a what's called a single audit. Um, so anytime you spend $750,000 or more in federal funds with, across all, all grants, uh, you are subject to what's called a single audit. Um, and, and that requires us to apply the requirements of the Office of Management and Budget, which developed the uniform guidance uh, under in, in the Code of Federal Regulations uh, for all these federal funds. So it's a lot of information, uh, but there's a lot of steps. So it's the basic audit is just your financial statement audit. Then if you're going to receive grants, you would have to get it a financial statement audit in accordance with generally accepted auditing standards in addition to the government auditing standards. And then if you actually spend more than 750,000, you have a third level of standards, which is called the Uniform Guidance or 2 CFR 200 um, through the federal government. And they give us all the rules that we have to apply to your grants. The good news is, if there, if it is good news, that all of those rules are included in your grant application. So they allude to it, it's, it's worded, easier or it's easier to understand when you read that grant application versus going directly to the Code of Federal Regulations. But that's what we're here for, right? To also help you decipher what are those requirements. Um, so anyway. That's great. That's about it. So <laughs> we've, we've talked too about when we might need some other services, some other either teams at Whitley Penn that might come into play and those are going to get spotlighted throughout the series. So we won't spend a lot of time talking about that. Or maybe there's other things our audit team helps with. Do you have any suggestions, recommendations, anything that you've seen be yeah. useful? I mean, you have the, the different service lines, right? And then we'll get into very specific things. But, you know, you obviously as part of the audit for a not-for-profit, you will need a 990, but we have... Uh, awesome, capable individuals that can provide those 990 tax preparation services. Uh, here lately, since the pandemic, we had the employee retention credit or ERC that came into play. And we have a whole group that'll help your not-for-profit determine if you're eligible um, and help you um, take advantage of those credits. Uh, so it's it's a really great uh, way to to take advantage of all of our services. So you right. we may come to you uh, with the need for, or you come to us for the need for an audit, but then we'll say, have you ever thought about this? Or as we're digging into your operations, we'll say, you might want to consider X, Y, Z. And, you know, we have even on the government side, right? They're, they're, non they're a tax exempt entity as well. They don't even do a 990 like you all have to, but they actually have tax issues, uh, 1099, uh, issues uh, that they have to report 941 IRS issues. And so our tax professionals are there. You can sign the power of attorney and they'll help you deal with the IRS as well as a non-for-profit, as a public sector or governmental entity. We're there for you as well. And I take advantage of that. I always refer my clients to the tax department to help them deal with the IRS because we know that that can be quite tedious as well. Sometimes we've had 
new or, or clients that are new to the audit and they reach out and they say, I don't know if I'm ready for an audit. I know I'll need one, but can mm-hmm. we do a practice audit? And we've done, we did that in 22 where they said, let's pretend and they hire us. We're, we're in the role of auditor, but we know that that report's not going to go anywhere. And so we'll audit a previous year before we get into the actual year and we do a, a, a pretend audit. Um, And that's really helpful for them to see, oh, my goodness, is this really what it takes to pass the audit? And so that's very helpful. Sometimes what I'll say as well, well, let me just do your audit prep. Let me help you get ready. Let me look at your policies. Let me look at your controls. And then you can find another service provider for for the audit. Or if I'm already doing the audit, I can still do an internal control evaluation or I'll reach out to our risk advisory services that are well-versed in that, and they could do a deeper dive in that without, one of the things that I should have mentioned at the beginning is any, any audit or review or even compilation requires independence, right? For the, the fight, so I'll, I'll speak a little bit more on the compilation, but for sure on the review and the audit, we have to be independent in order to provide this opinion. Um, and on the review, some limited assurance. On the compilation, independence, is it's an attest service, so we do have to have independence. But if we're not, it's not a deal breaker. We just have to disclose right. that in the compilation report. But we can't, we can't be, we can not impair independence and still do the financial statement work. So if we do an internal control review, it's truly an assessment. We provide you with recommendations, but we don't tell you we don't do the actual implementation. We cannot be part of management. So anytime we're acting as management, we've crossed the line, that independence line. And so poll number two has just popped on your screen. So if you're just listening to us and not looking at your screen, hop back on onto your laptop and take a look at poll number two um, and, and answer that for CPE credit. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I think there's there's a variety of services that, that we can provide. I you know, I love doing the the policy review or even if, if you ask me to write your policies, I love that. But just know that if I've written them, I probably can't do your audit because I can't audit what I wrote. Uh, but we also sometimes um, we, we partner with great attorneys as well that specialize in this area. And so if we need to help help you with that with any legal matters or or looking at contracts etc we have uh wonderful attorneys that that partner with us um as well so that's just going ex- outside of the firm but there's so much that that we could do for you um and like i said at the beginning you know i i I don't like to just be put in this box as she's an auditor. Well, no, I, I I want to partner with you in your everyday operations, keeping independent. You know, a lot of you are my friends. Um, I'm still going to be impartial, but we want to per- be that that trusted advisor for you in everything. And we don't want you to wait, right? We don't want you to wait to to tell us about something that has gone wrong because maybe we can remedy it quickly. So, so. This has all been really great. And one thing that I think is a little bit misunderstood about Whitley Penn, we are, we have gotten to be a very large firm. I feel like when we started, it maybe wasn't quite such a large firm, but we work with clients in all life stages. One of my favorite things I get to do is help startup nonprofits get going and get moving. And I am constantly surprised at how quickly 
they need an audit and how how they've really focused in on an area that needs something. That idea of a practice audit or the internal control review, I think is so valuable. And if you are not getting a financial statement audit at this point, but you see it off in the horizon, I really want to encourage you to think about whether that service could be useful to you. Um, my next question is, you've again touched on it quite a bit, but what value do you think the financial statement audit provides? And we can go through this one pretty quickly if you don't have a lot more you want to add. Yeah, I just think that um, for those that are a little bit hesitant, uh, but you know that there's some problem areas, I would just dive in and just use it as a learning experience. Perhaps there's internal controls that you need to strengthen or rethink, revamp, et cetera, um, or, or maybe some reconciliations need some work as well. But use it as a learning opportunity or uh, just to, to confirm that, hey, I am a, doing a good job. Uh, just remembering that the financial statement audit is not an assessment of your economic well-being we right. will tell you like saying, OK, you're you're headed towards a danger zone. And I'll always look at your net assets compared to your expenditures. We look at, OK, th these these with donor or without donor restrictions can only last you so long or your without donor restrictions needs to need to increase um, for future um, investment in the actual not-for-profit. Uh, so we'll provide that, but just remembering that that it, it allows the users um, to determine whether the financial statements can be relied on so they can make their decisions. So I think, I think we've summarized it in the other questions as well, but again, I just wouldn't shy away from it, but you need to find an auditor that will partner with you and has that same mindset. I don't, I, I get a little angry when I don't want to say angry. That's kind of a strong word, but but disappointed. And it hurts mm -hmm. us auditors that are passionate about it. But you need to find someone that's passionate about it and that wants to walk you through it um, and, and is concerned about your success. And we always say that if you don't get better every year, then we haven't done our job. If we're not providing you with that value and recommendations every year, then we probably haven't done our job. So we want to do that every year. <clears throat> That's great. I think that's so helpful. So we've talked about fraud, and I know that this is a word that makes accounting seem so glamorous and exciting. And unfortunately, it's something that affects our nonprofits. Mm -hmm. If you're either in the stage of life where you need an audit or you're working towards that, or you know you may never get to a stage where you need an audit, what do you recommend to protect against fraud? You know, it, it all goes back to assessing that internal control, right? Um, there's, there's this, if you imagine a door with a lock, right? That's supposed to have a lock, but you look at a door and where the lock goes, it's missing. There's just a big fat hole, right? <laughs> or you have a lock, but the keys are attached right? Mm -hmm. The doorknob, the keys are attached, or you have a lock, it's locked, keys are removed, the keys are safeguarded, and they only come out, and they're only brought out by the right people. So internal controls are just that, right? Do you have zero controls where then you put your organization at risk? Um, or do you have the controls in place? They're designed, but not implemented. And then the latter, the, the last example is they're well-designed and well-implemented, carried out, et cetera, and they're operating effectively. 
Sometimes, like I mentioned, if you're a small entity, it's tough to do that. So what I always recommend, and when I meet with your board, I they always say, what do you recommend we do? Well, I tell the board, you need to be involved in the operations. If you only have one person, you can you don't have to have the ability to write checks. I don't want the board members to have the ability to write checks um, or to have access to the bank, but they should have read only access to those bank accounts so they can see the activities. Um, I always tell them, look at these financial statements that I'm presenting to you and think back to the last monthly report that you received from your CFO, your business manager, et cetera, from your staff and see if the, if it's in alignment. You know, sometimes our, our information is from three months or four months ago, but it shouldn't be drastically different. And if it is, there should be a legitimate explanation why it's different. So I always ask them to to mesh the two together and be thinking, don't look at, at, at their financial statements produced internally and our external financial statements in silos. Mesh them together, ask us questions. So <clears throat> I would say, you know, have the treasurer have read-only access so they can see, the, the board the board feels good about it. Um, and then also, like I said, the CFO will feel good about it, that there's another set of eyes looking at it. There's quick and simple ways for you to look at looking at the check registers, looking for duplicate payments. Um, a quick thing, there's an Excel function called a fuzzy lookup. If you Google fuzzy lookup, you'll find a YouTube and it's cheap, right? If you own Excel, you can do this, but you can look at duplicate vendors. Um, especially if you have perhaps other individuals that help you in your operations, who's setting up vendors? And are there duplicate vendors? Because I've seen so much fraud, not just in not-for-profits, but also in governmental entities where they take advantage of duplicate vendors. And it could be a slight variation in the vendor name, but because you're in it every day, you don't have time to step back. You, you, it's very likely that you'll you'll uh, it's an oversight on your part. You'll overlook that that use of that um, uh, invalid uh, vendor. So you mm -hmm. want to make sure that you're reviewing that maybe at a minimum quarterly. If you could do it every every month or every other month, that'd be better. But looking at that, looking for fictitious vendors or even looking at your employees, comparing employee addresses to uh, vendor addresses is a quick way to do that. You can you could do a fuzzy lookup as well, especially with the addresses. See where you're mailing out their 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 checks if they're not on um uh direct is it Oh my gosh. Direct deposit. Direct deposit. Yeah, I would say direct pay. I'm at a loss for words today. If they're, you know, if you're actually mailing out checks, or is it a real person? Now, mm -hmm. if it's a small organization, it's probably easier for you to know exactly who you're paying. But as you begin to grow, figure out um, who you're paying and, and why. And then scan all checks for proper signatures and payees. The most common fraud that I've seen is that these random signatures appear. And while your depository institution should be looking for that, sometimes th they they mess up as well. And so they'll cash checks that do not have the proper signatures and look for irregularities. Typically, we'll just flip through those checks and see, oh, this signature looks really weird. Um, or, you know, there's bad actors that can just lift your signature and steal your check stock. Simple thing of protecting your check stock. Who has access to it? Um, so there's just simple little things that um, are cost effective that you don't have to spend a lot of money for and you can still implement successfully.
That's great. And I think the one thing I want to spotlight that we're going to talk about a little bit later in this month is when we interview our um, accounting outsourced accounting group, we're going to talk about how engaging an outsourced accounting group can help you strengthen yourself against fraud, can improve some of those internal controls when you have a limited number of employees and sort of mitigate some of these risks. But I think the most important thing you said is just kind of that step back, look at something from the 10,000 foot view. Don't just look at day to day, look for those irregularities. I think that's one of the big things we see. And unfortunately, nonprofits are a big target for a lot of bad actors. Mm -hmm. So we have about 10 minutes left, and I wanted to just give you the opportunity to share anything you haven't shared so far. We do have one question from the audience that I would like to get to as well. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll keep that short if that's possible, because I, I can I can carry on. Um, but I think I mentioned it, and I'll just say it again. I, I tell all of our clients, and even when we're trying to get new clients or, or, or um, you know, when we propose is... Our approach is very different. It is uh, an educational approach, and we don't we don't shy away from helping you. Again, we keep the lines of independence very uh, clear, but we don't want you to wait to ask us about unusual transactions or difficult issues until we get out for the audit. Because at that point, think about it: your fiscal year or your cal- the calendar year is over. It's too late. And if you ask us in the moment while it's fresh on your mind. We can help you with a solution. And this is that just tells us as well that you are on top of your operations. Just be, you're you're gonna mess up. There's gonna th- be things that go wrong. The important thing is how do we fix it quickly and limit the the exposure to the organization and the loss. So, so that's really what we we and exposure, I mean making sure that your grantors aren't negatively impacted or have a negative view of you. And then, of course, the actual loss, um, monetary loss uh, to to any of those areas. But and it could be something very um, benign, right? That it's just an unusual transaction that you really haven't dealt with and you just need accounting advice. Use us for that and we'll help you through those journal entries and and walk through it with you and how it's going to appear on your financial statements and anything else that you need to do and maybe even tax implications that we need. So use us is what I would say. I I want to spotlight too, y'all do a wonderful job about teaching the new audit standards. I know um, part of my job this past year has been really trying to understand the new lease standards, and I applaud you for being able to get through those. They are quite <laughs> tricky, but I really have always appreciated y'all really are teachers, and you don't mind getting down in the trenches working with people through everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. I'm going to pop over to our question from the audience, and then I'll close with one final question for you. So we talked a little bit about a review, an audit, and a compilation. Can you distinguish those a little bit further for us? Sure. So we'll start, you know, we already know that the audit provides the highest level of assurance, right? So in the audit, we are inquiring, we are inspecting, we're corroborating, and finally, we're confirming, we're actually testing. When you get to a review, it's limited assurance. So it's inquiry and analytics only. So we can look at trends and just tell you those trends look weird, but we don't go deeper than that. So as an auditor, 
I have to like use restraint because you want to dig in deeper, confirm, corroborate. But that's the difference. And, and, and a review may not be appealing to some. They're like, well, you know, I don't I don't know what that's telling me. Uh, but sometimes that's all that's necessary. Tell us if anything looks odd. That's all we need at this point. A compilation is that compiling your financial statements from your records um, or you compile them and then we tell you they're they're properly stated it's in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles we may say that um you know we are independent or not but the compilation doesn't provide assurance like the review or um the audit um so so those are the differences and as you as you move down it's less assurance and so sometimes you just need compilation because that's that's all that's re required of you and why would you inflict anything else on yourself right. as a reviewer and audit um but but those are the differences that's great that's a great explanation so my final question for oh here we have a polling question um make sure you're answering these so you can get cpe credit the last question i wanted to just spend a little bit of time on is are there any resources you'd like to share um you've mentioned the fuzzy lookup Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? Yes. Yes. And I think that's a great one. It sounds pretty efficient and a good use of resources, but anything else that you think is helpful for us? Yeah, I think um, if you're not, I use this as an auditor, but as an auditee, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants or the AICPA has a not-for-profit section that provides you with uh, governance, uh, management tips as well. So it's, it's mm -hmm. geared towards the actual, uh, not-for-profit. And I love it because I serve on, uh, two, I, I serve currently on a board and I did, um, last year on a different board and, and, and the two boards were in different stages, but it gave me ideas on governance as well. And what my role as, as, part of governance uh, was versus I don't want to be management. I can't be management. I need to let management do that. But it'll also give you sample policies, sample internal controls, the, the hot topics for nonprofits in, in the year. So I love that as a board member of a nonprofit um, and as an auditor. So I think those listening would, would really benefit uh, by joining that not-for-profit not section. It's, it's a really good resource. It is. And I've, I don't know about you. I've gotten a certificate for the second section and they have CPEs throughout the year. It's a really good value for your money if you're already a member of the AICPA to add on that extra section. Yeah.